0: The definition of mobility and everything it encompasses is rapidly and ever-changing. No one knows this better than George Ayers, Managing Director of Automobility Advisors. George, a self-described motorhead, was first drawn to the industry due to his love for all things on wheels, from motorcycles to performance cars. His varied experience in engineering, journalism, auto, marketing, and technology, working at major companies like Ford and Verizon, prepared him for the niche and invaluable role he now plays today at Automobility Advisors. In this position, George essentially serves as the bridge between scrappy auto startups and the big established players in the space, enabling the new companies on the scene to navigate product planning, sales management, and business development, business model monetization. I'm Michelle Perog, Chief Strategy Officer of Park My Fleet, I'm so excited to welcome George Ayers today on the Driving Mobility Podcast, where we're going to dig into a wide array of topics, from fleet electrification to mass adoption to what the word mobility actually means today and will mean in the future. Welcome, George. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Ah, Thank you, Michelle. Well, it's great to be here.
0: Can you tell us about your early years? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And what did you study?
1: I grew up in the middle of the country in the great state of Iowa and my dad was a engineering professor at Iowa State University and uh, when I was about 14 he decided that he wanted to buy his uncle's dairy farm in upstate New York and he stopped academia and became a dairy farmer overnight and as his oldest son I got to be a dairy farmer's hired hand overnight
0: Wow, from engineering to dairy farming. Very interesting.
1: He's a a scientific farmer. That's what I call him. So he's doing all kinds of uh, experiments all the time. You know, I kind of grew up in, let's say, the town environment. We're at a paper route back when people delivered newspapers. And then I got to milk cows in high school. So uh, very different. Uh, But I also got to ride motorcycles and do all kinds of fun things that you can do in a rural setting. Right. So that was good. For many reasons, I decided to go back to school. When I went to college, I went to Iowa State, and I went to engineering. And like many, I started in engineering, but I didn't quite end up in engineering and ended up finding my way via journalism ultimately to business and marketing side and graduated in business. I've always been really interested in engineering and always always had jobs since then, believe it or not, usually working with engineers or near engineers. Many years later, I would be involved in uh, what's called voice of the customer work, You know, trying to figure out what people want in the car business. And I'd be the marketing person that would be on the team of engineers. So I find that you know, that early training, while I didn't quite get through all the classical thermodynamics and other classes that were offered, uh, I I end up being around it uh, all my career. So I think that's interesting.
0: That's quite a dimensional path. It seems to me when I speak to entrepreneurs their paths never really are linear. They definitely have a curious mind and it's hard to stay into just one path. So it seems very dimensional. It seems to have served you well.
1: So far, so good. I think curious mind is true. I do lots of reading of different topics, different areas for that same reason, just to stay on top of things. And that's what's exciting to me about what's happening in automotive right now is there's so many new things to learn about. uh, And some of them are highly technical, but mm-hmm. many are not. Many are just, you know, basic how people buy cars and why they buy cars and who's going to buy the cars and stuff like that.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So that leads me to my next question about um, the mobility industry specifically. What exactly inspired you to get involved with mobility and what do you really define mobility as? Seems to be a lot of definitions out there.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I started like many people, I kind of had the, the, you know, Motorsports, car, motorcycle, bug. When I was little, my my grandfather ran a Honda motorcycle dealership. In high school, I ended up working there for a time, uh, putting new motorcycles together, stuff like that, doing some basic uh, mini bike service work. Always been into that. Have motorcycles in my garage today. I have a performance car in my garage today. Those kinds of things. So there's that whole side of automotive, and that started me in that world. But I think. Your question about mobility is interesting because the more we see it change, and we have so many things now beyond just four-wheeled cars, right? EV talls and scooters and all kinds of things that I think it starts to encompass this idea of anything that people can essentially move around in on the ground, and some things that people aren't even in, like uh, you know, robotic. Uh, Mobility services and things like that. That's why it's to me really exciting because the variety is much higher than it's ever been. All those different services still need a lot of the same things, right? I still have to move people around. Therefore, I have to be conscious of safety and all the things that go in with that. Um, you know, how, how to do that with technology, connected vehicle services, all kinds of things. It's true in almost all categories now.
0: It's so true. And mobility is so broad. It's one of those industries where I think of the saying from Socrates where he said, The more I learn, the less I know. It seems so true. It's just a, it's just a exciting place to be, especially right now. Tell me a little bit about your company, um, Automobility Advisors and what your role is there.
1: Sure. Yeah, thank you. Uh So I kind of saw an opportunity a couple of years ago to leverage this experience I had with larger companies, right? I worked in the automotive industry, uh, you know, itself deeply, worked for Ford Motor Company for many years and Jaguar Cars for many years. And then I ended up working for technology companies like Verizon and IBM, focused on connected vehicles primarily. And I saw this opportunity a couple of years ago that there's so many innovative, smaller companies that are there for uh, improving that mobility experience, improving the automotive experience, bringing new innovative features, and they need some uh, assistance from time to time uh, where they uh, aren't so intimidated by the big company and all the issues around the big company and how the big company thinks and makes decisions and does purchasing and things like that big company needs innovation. Sometimes they can't do it themselves. They have to look outside the firm to do that. But they're hard to work with. They're slow. There's all kinds of issues, right? There's many, many people that are decision makers. And then there's the small startup that has a great idea. There's 10 people. There's no slowdown in decision making. They can make decisions fast. But it's intimidating for them to work with hundred people at a car company, including purchasing, including legal, including all these different groups. Right. And I've worked in both. So I kind of stand between those two and I can help the startup understand how to navigate the car company or the tier one supplier or other similar company. And I can help the big company understand how to incorporate the startup, take that energy in, without, you know, snuffing it out in the process and and bringing in that innovation, actually making it happen. Get done what they're trying to get done, right? At the end of the day. The, I love the, that.
0: It's like you're the yeah. conduit between yeah. the corporate, I mean, corporate has the the means and the workflow and the understanding of how their business model is, and then entrepreneurs generally come out of finding some type of a gap in the industry and being able to be flexible and scrappy and, and come up with a solution. And then how do you get from there to break into the corporate piece where there's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape and to have somebody like you that's a conduit to help with that path seems to be very beneficial.
1: I try to be not just transactional about it, but more like relationship building and you know hold the hand of the startup in a manner of speaking, and hold the hand of the car company at the same time and be in the middle and and then bring them together and help that relationship grow and develop. And then both are happy, right? The yeah. OEM the car company is happy with me because I can find innovative startups and help them get started. And the startup is happy with me because I can help them find deals with OEMs and they can raise more money and grow and do all the things they need to do. It's just standing in between those two worlds and bringing those two worlds together.
0: Okay, changing changing our speed a little bit here. What are your general thoughts on electrification and its role in achieving net zero?
1: Just the last, what, two years has been really exciting uh, as the really big companies decide to really you know, double and triple down on this. When I start to read things about car companies with mining deals, Uh, I know they're really focused on vertical integration in a new way, right, in a Mm -hmm. future way. And uh, and that's really exciting because that means they have committed 100%. There's no turning back. They're going to put their product development plans in place and do that. And as somebody who's been inside the car company before, you know, I know how long it takes to make a car, right? Three or four years is really fast. It's usually five to seven years, right? It's kind of from R and D all the way to you know final vehicle, and you know millions and billions of dollars, right? So they're making these big bets, and that means the world's turning that way, right? It's uh, it's almost like if you think about um, corollaries, like if you remember uh, early days of the internet, uh, certainly somebody my age remembers, probably not you, but Netscape and Mark Andreessen and all these guys learning how to do the internet and Microsoft finally kind of thinking, okay, we're going to have to deal with the internet, right? I remember that moment when they had to turn the ship and your car companies have done that, right? They've turned the ship and, and pretty much all of them. And some of it because the competitors, smaller new startups in the EV space have dragged them there. But a lot of them, because they see the why it's good in the long run, why it makes sense, why over time, it's better for the planet and why it lines up with their sustainability and, and other environmental goals. Uh, and so I think it's great to see this. I think we have a lot of things to still work out, right? Uh, where, you know, where earth minerals come out of the ground and how they come out of the ground and things like that. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, a world of quieter, even more powerful, believe it or not, you know, smoother, uh, vehicles that are in this mobility space is probably a good thing. And, uh, I think, you know, I'm interested in making it happen or being a small part of it. So, uh, I think it's great.
0: I couldn't agree more. It seems that the car companies that have done really well in the last couple of years and, and really the last three or four years, there's been a lot of transition and talk of transition, seems like the ones that have been adaptable um, and resourceful have have done really well. In the car industry, essentially, it's really the bedrock of the United States. I mean, they really kind of held up this country for a long time. So it's great to see when they kind of wrap their head around the idea that, okay, things are changing, but there is still a place for us here. And let's just figure out how we apply that to our company in provide a service for our customers. And just
1: to pick up on that last point, 80s and 90s, when I was early in the car business, I remember numbers like one of every seven jobs in America is an automotive job, right? Because it's a strategic industry. But what's interesting is there's a lot of technology jobs now that are automotive jobs, right? So it's still a strategic industry, but now it's moved and shifted to be more of a technology industry.
0: Absolutely, because our car where... is now just a computer on wheels yeah. and it's just yeah. becoming more and more connected. So we're going to see a lot more technology. When we talk about electrification, we often talk about the personally owned vehicles like the Teslas of the industry. How important is that aspect to achieving mass adoption as opposed to you know fleet electrification?
1: Yeah, I think actually uh, in this case, we're going to see, uh, I think, as you may agree, a lot more fleet adoption. Than previous, let's say, um, situations, generations of vehicles, and some of it is the newness for customers. You know, we, we're kind of past the people that try things first, and all those people have, have an EV already. We're into kind of the early adopters. You know, uh, early majority. Pay. We're starting to get in that. Once we start to say five or six percent of our new car sales are EVs. Now we're starting to, as Jeffrey Moore would say, cross the chasm, but that's a big pool of people and they have a lot of variety of knowledge and understanding and the markets that serve them, right? Some of the retailers and others um, aren't quite there yet, in my view, in terms of educating everybody. So it seems daunting to still many people who would be an early adopter, but aren't sure how to put a charging station in their garage or who I call and the dealer may or may not be telling me about how to do it. And I didn't realize I have to pay extra for that. And uh, what do you mean I pay more when I charge it at certain times of day than other times and all these kinds of ideas. And how does it, how does this thing fit in my life? We kind of cross that major hurdle, right? Of mileage and range rather range. So 300 mile range. Most people say, yep. Okay, fine. Just as good as a fuel vehicle. But then they start to dig in and do the research and figure out, okay, in my daily commute, when I go from A to B, is there a a plug in my uh, workplace? You know, they start to figure all that other stuff out, which today they don't even worry about. I don't worry about finding a gas station, right? I don't worry about that. And so with EVs, they do worry about it. And they have to have knowledge and information and people have to kind of hold their hand a little bit. And that's okay. So... You contrast that retail kind of customer experience where they're finding it out themselves to a fleet, large fleet, certainly that is, you know, organized to find out this kind of information that focuses on how to manage large pools of vehicles, how to deal with things like total cost of ownership over time and uh, buying cars and, and selling cars through auction and residual values and all these kinds of things. And the fleet is to me, uh, very, very organized to be good at ingesting large amounts of EVs and dealing with that and maintaining those and working with charge companies to put chargers in certain places for their customers and things like that. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the U S of course, fleet penetration just generally is not as high as this in Europe in some other markets, right? Where there's a, you know, there's kind of a a culture almost, right, Uh, in some cases for fleet management. In the UK, where I lived for four years, everybody has a company car, or Mm -hmm. almost everybody does. Part of your pay packet, they would say, has a company car. That's not the case in the U.S. market, right? So we're we're moving from 18-20% of all cars are fleet in the U.S. to something higher versus in Europe, where it's already 40 plus, 50 plus percent, right? So but I think the fleets can move the needle much faster than the retail customer. And then the retail customers will catch up. The education will happen. The distribution uh, uh, points will all be telling people how to, how to do uh, charging and where to, where to install this and that. And they'll, they'll, they'll figure it out uh, much faster because the fleets will lead the way.
0: Right. I totally agree. I think, you know, the fleets have something that the consumer doesn't have, which is predictability. They really, Mm -hmm. for the most part, know their route and understand the vehicle and where they're going to need charging. And a lot of them have different uh, sites that they can charge that are commercial only. So it's a different scenario. I do see some companies evolving out of this uh, consumer learning curve, I guess you could call it. So it's like subscription companies that will allow you to have an EV for six months or a year before you purchase. Um, And then there are some companies around the country that are doing kind of like training programs or just awareness programs where people can get into vehicles and drive them for a period of time. We also see some other rental car companies like Turo that has a lot of EVs on their platforms that if you Mm -hmm. wanted to try one for a week or two weeks, you can do that. Um, And we had a lot of learnings when we did our charge across America, and we had five teams of basically consumers. We did have two teams that were expert in EV, but the other three teams had never gotten an EV. And we learned a lot from them on how they did just what you said. They had to think ahead about where they were going to charge and when and how and all of these things that you don't have to think about currently. But the only reason we don't have to think about it right now is because the infrastructure is there. We're just we're just behind in the EV infrastructure. I think it's going to catch up. And I think once it's easier or as easy to drive an EV, then th- we're going to see, you know, mass adoption. And it's going to be exponential. Yeah, sure.
1: I agree. I agree. Uh, two, two thoughts there. One is uh, we recently started working with one of the companies you mentioned, a subscription company. And one of the I think one of the situations for the U.S. market is that over time, the automotive, let's say, cost of driving a vehicle has kind of been disaggregated. There's your car payment. There's your insurance payment. There's your fuel cost. There's your maintenance cost. And people don't think of it all together. They think of it in, in the bite-sized pieces. And uh, one of the benefits of the subscription model is an all-in cost. Which could be, and many times is much lower, or can be lower, and certainly on EVs, when you have lower maintenance costs and other things, uh, you can have a lower number and have a new car, right? Or
0: right, uh, good
1: value. Um, so good yeah, I, I agree. I agree.
0: Do you drive an EV? Have you driven uh, an EV?
1: I have driven EVs. I don't have one currently. I'm looking to buy one, actually, or. Maybe subscribe to one. We'll see how that works out uh, soon, probably this year, actually.
0: Do you have Uh, a preference? Do you have a top choice?
1: Well, you know, one of the challenges, I was doing some some research the other day, and one of the challenges, of course, like everybody has, is affordability, right, of EVs. And we're starting to see now some new EVs come out. This fall, I think, we get the Chevy Equinox. Mm -hmm. I think it's this fall, $30,000. EV, 300 mile range, right? But most of them are 50,000, right? Or more than 50,000. I think the Polestar 3 I was looking at, which is a great, uh, great looking car, that's $83,000,
0: right? So if we're going to mean meaningfully electrify, we have to electrify our fleets, just as you just talked about. Can you please talk about um, how we can more quickly electrify our fleets uh, the importance of that and the challenges that it might take to achieve electrifying more fleets? Yeah,
1: I think the uh, the first thing to remember is the fleets, in most cases, uh, as they start to do that, as they start to bring in EVs as mi- in their mix, uh, they have a mixed fleet that they have to deal with. They have a system that's going to have all types of vehicles, ICE vehicles, PHEV, BEV, and they have to deal with all those at the same time, right? So, how to help them uh, do that in a more efficient way, easier way, is gonna really speed things up. So, for example, many fleets have fleet management systems, fleet management tools where they collect data on their vehicles so they know how a vehicle's driven, how long it's idling, for example, if it's an ice vehicle, things like that, right? Where it is, just basic location, how to do it, stolen vehicle recovery if I need to, things like that. So they want to have that on all their vehicles, no matter what the powertrain is, whether it's an ICE vehicle or a BEV, uh, battery electric vehicle. So understanding how we fit inside their world, their current world, what they're trying to do, and add in these new vehicles that have a different powertrain technology, but are still... You know, vehicles that people drive in—they all have the same kind of other uh, connected technology. P- potentially helping those fleets, fleet managers deal with that mixed fleet dynamic, right? It would be different, I think, if it was a pure swap over, right? Take a hundred ICE vehicles out, put a hundred BEVs in, and start over again. But there's really very few fleets that are going to do that. They're going to do it over time, and they're going to have to deal with this problem. And so, helping them understand their whole system, not just the EV side of the system, I think accelerates that because it, it makes them see the EV, total cost of ownership, that's lower that they're looking for. They can do it and accelerate it. But for the time being, they have to operate their ICE vehicles for another year or two. I mean, I've I read about some rental car companies that that are holding on to vehicles longer right now because they can't get new cars, right? Because of the supply constraints and chip shortage and all that kind of stuff. So instead of turning them at 12 months, they're turning them at 24 months or 36 months. So Absolutely. now those cars- And I wonder long. how many
0: are holding them because they are either unsure of if they want to replace it with an ICE vehicle or an EV, or if they're part of the, um, part of the supply chain challenges that we've had and they are waiting for EVs, so they're just holding on. To Ice vehicles in the meantime. Yeah,
1: I think there's a bunch of people that are looking at that. You know, as we said, crossing the chasm, they're looking at that and saying, Are we on the other side of it yet or
0: not? Once right, we're it fully is
1: into the early majority, then they're going to go. Uh, and we're right on the cusp right
0: now. There are many naysayers in the industry, especially groups involved with gas stations, truck stops, and convenience stores. What will it take to get them on board or at least to get them to stop? Interfering with the transition.
1: Historically, right, the uh, the carbon industry, let's call it the carbon industry, oil and gas or oil industry, invented the distribution, right? They invented gas stations to distribute their product, and branded them such, right? Mobil stations, Exxon, et cetera, Standard Oil, all these different companies historically. So, so, and then those facilities all learned that. Well, gas is actually just a commodity and we're going to sell other things, retail items and right, 7-Elevens and all, all kinds of things like that. So, so there's a whole new world out there of retail distribution that they, they, they should be happy in theory if people stay there for 20 minutes instead of five minutes, right? Right. Or you could have
0: someone like me who does, I don't like to go to convenience stores at all. And if I have an option of charging my car at home, I'll probably never go to one. So I think it's going to be either or, where you have people that are there longer or not at all.
1: I I agree. I agree. I think most EV uh, drivers learn pretty quickly to do this regular cycle, right, where they go to work, they come home and they charge it at home overnight. They never need to worry about fueling, essentially, because they just plug their car in every night. And that makes sense from the, the, uh, uh you know, the convenience store point, the, the distribution point, there are times when you want to stop, when you right. stop, it makes sense to top up. So you may stay only for a little bit. I think from the network point of view, it doesn't really necessarily matter that it's, you know, gasoline or electrons at the end of the day, I, I read this morning, uh, that that Electrify America just made a deal with Travel Centers America, which is a you know place yeah. like that that's networked all over the country. And I see more and more of that and they're hedging their bets, right? So they're gonna have their gasoline pumps and their charge points. And it's all about attracting people to come and interact with their store.
0: Well, it makes, it makes a lot sense. of sense. So on that subject then, let's talk about EV chargers. How do you think we're doing with installing them, and how can we do better?
1: Uh, I think there's a lot of issues uh, right now. I think the good news is, you know, we got some kind of uh, government rules and grants and incentives to go out and do more of that. I think uh, state by state, which is great. So we're encouraging everybody to do it. Uh, Certainly the types of chargers are improving rapidly because there's many, many providers now, right, level two, level three chargers, et cetera. I think there's still, you know, you've probably seen it. I've seen it chargers that are in the wrong place. They're behind the building where it's not so bright at 10 o'clock at night. And the charge cord is laying in a puddle because it's not put away. Right. So I don't want to use it because I'm worried about it. It's not in a place I want to be, you know, all kinds of things like that are still, I think, happening. Uh, every time I read that 25% of the chargers in America are not working or operational, uh, I never really believe that could be true. But if it's the case, one out of four chargers is not working right, that's a big problem. Uh, so we need to really work on individual charge points, quality, where they're deployed, how they work, uh, you know, plug and charge capability so I don't have to go through 10 screens, To make it happen, you know, there's a even an etiquette and a protocol. I think customers are learning right as they Mm -hmm. vie for who gets to use it first and those kinds of things. So there's a lot of things going on, but that's all, you know, that's all new. I mean, the early days of gasoline distribution, it was done in barrels, open barrels. We would never do that today. Right.
0: When we did Charge Across America, it was true. At least a quarter of the chargers that those teams tried to access were malfunctioning.
1: That takes out your capacity, right? You're, you're working really hard to put all these charge points out in the world, and one out of four doesn't work. If, if you get right. you know, uh, 99% working efficiency, you're going to help everybody. Right.
0: Before we started this call, we were talking a little bit about conferences, and there are so many mobility conferences right now. It's hard to – you can't go to them all, so it's hard to pick the ones that are relevant and valuable. Which is your favorite conference to go to each year and why?
1: Well, I think the one I have to mention is the Consumer Electronics Show, which used to be about consumer electronics, and now it's all about automotive and electrification. And mobility, and digital transformation of automotive, and all the areas that I'm excited about working in. So, uh, you know, a it's in Las Vegas. That's always fun. Uh, But b it it it's bigger than ever. Uh, There's actually a new uh, hall, the West Hall, that was put up since I had been there three years ago. uh, That was great, and it was full of all kinds of different things, including John Deere had a big display for precision farming. You know, using uh, AI and uh, geospatial location to uh, make an automated tractor go around the field precisely, only spraying that weed that has, you know, individual weeds, not everywhere. All kinds so of cool. cool things, right? So, you know, there's there's mobility conferences. There's you know there used to be auto shows, and I say used to be. So there's still some out there, but they've gotten a lot smaller over time. And the automakers are trying to be technology companies. As we said earlier, they're trying to be mm-hmm. much more technology forward. And so they decide to showcase their products at a technology show like the Consumer Electronics Show. So I think I highly recommend that. It's We uh, get 140,000, 130,000 people this year, wow. which is a lot. So uh, for the biggest, most interesting show, that would be my pick.
0: Well, thanks for the suggestion. I will definitely put that on my list and try to go next year. The last question for you is a little bit vague. I don't know if you want to answer it personally or about business, your choice. But the question is, what does success mean to you in your life?
1: You know, I think it means feeling, uh, feeling like your contribution has been valued and uh, getting feedback from other people that you made a difference made a difference in their life, made a difference in their work, uh, you know, somehow. And, and, and really feeling like you're, um, you're of service, being of service, um, providing, uh, you know, providing something extra. And having that curious mind, I think, helps. Uh, reaching out and doing uh, networking helps, right? Uh, and, and being available right? Being, being available to help people when they call and they ask. Uh, I think that's, to me, the best definition. And that goes for family, kids, everybody, right? Uh, you know, uh, I love being the automotive dad, right? When, when I have to, from time to time, jump in and solve somebody's automotive problem because they call me because I'm supposed to know about that, makes me feel valuable, right? So I think that's, to me, my definition of success.
0: I love that. Being available. That's a good one. Pleasure having you. Looking forward to networking with you more, either on Zoom or hopefully somewhere, some conference somewhere.
1: Um, Thank you so much. We'll see each other at CES next year.
0: Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle.